This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 158 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. Our guest is Adil Saeed. He's served as the Global Chief Information Security Officer for a number of top-tier financial institutions and as an advisor to organizations including the London Stock Exchange and the American Stock Exchange. Our conversation centers on his mantra of planning for resilience and eventuality amidst a growing range of global threats in the cyber realm and beyond. He shares his experience after 9-11 and how it's informed his approach to preparing for the worst and how sometimes luck plays a part in disaster recovery. We'll get his views on threat intelligence and why he thinks now is a great time to join the cybersecurity industry. Stay with us. An infrastructure technologist by trade started in financial services uh, a little while ago um, and worked my way through the ranks through various financial services organizations such as uh, JP Morgan, American Stock Exchange, London Stock Exchange, and then State Street. And over time, uh, got a hold of being a corporate CIO, managing corporate systems, corporate functions, um, and managing information security as part of that. Um, and then more recently as the Global Chief Information Security Officer. And were you someone who was interested uh, in security or in computers from a young age? I like to break things and I like to build things and I like to find solutions for problems. So uh, that naturally, uh, you know, layered my interest towards computers, uh, computer science being one my major in school as well. And I was always leaning towards the infrastructure side, less the development side. And on the infrastructure side, uh, back when security was not that predominant, but it was already built in into all system admins or system engineers when they were building solutions, um, I had a keen interest in how to build or at least in manage secure systems. And that led to the whole security side of things. And so in terms of uh, working with uh, global organizations the way that you have, um, what is a typical uh, day like for you? Um, no two days are the same. And if a day starts during the day, it would be a blessing in disguise. Uh, <laughs> it is really a, a very collaborative approach because, you know, being regulated companies, you need to be able to comply with all the global regulations, which are set in place to first, you know, manage the safeguard of the data that the organizations hold, uh, processing of that data, dissemination of that data and safeguarding of that data. So those regulations were put in place over many years. Some are new, some are really old. Uh, I think uh, the, old, the old ones, both the regulators and the organizations have a good handle on, and they have learned by trial and error and how to manage it and how to comply with it. It's mostly the new ones that have come around data privacy uh, or data security, which are ever-evolving, um, are always subject to a little bit of debate and professional um, back and forth, which requires understanding and interpretation because... Um, companies have not deployed it. No one has seen what is good, good looks like. Um, and that always becomes an interesting conversation with the regulators, which also drives um, a lot of innovation, which also drives a lot of modifications. Uh, mm. So what I would say is where a business would require a product or an end user would demand a particular item, dealing in this regulatory landscape also drives a lot of innovation. 
Um, and it also drives a lot of questions. You know, if we are protecting one side of the house, how would we protect the other side of the house, for example? Being that you're doing business globally, that means that you're dealing with a lot of regulations from different uh, nations, different, uh, you know, the EU has GDPR, uh, the U.S. has different regulations even on a state-by-state basis. Um, that's a lot of uh, different regulations to juggle, yes? Absolutely. Um, it's different regulations in different locations. Um, at least, well, Europe, you, one could easily say, you know, GDPR is the predominant um, regulation that everyone has to comply with. In the U.S., with various states, there are different um, um, regulations, uh, starting from the East Coast in New York with DFS all the way to the West Coast in California coming up with their own. And, um, you know, understanding the intention of the regulation, uh, I believe, personally speaking, uh, is more important um, than the letter of the each and every step that is required in that regulatory compliance. Um, because if you if you take a step back and, and look at GDPR and look at, you know, all the data privacy regulations that are there uh, or are coming up now uh, across different states and different countries, including Australia, is that, you know, you need to be able to protect the data in a way where it's not accessible by someone who shouldn't have access to it, you should have had you should have sound identity and access controls in place and you should have a way to monitor detect and be able to respond in an event that data is accessed by someone who shouldn't access and notify the recipient of that data and on top of all of that you need to have the ability to give that end consumer or that end user the ability to consent whether that data should be stored or not in certain cases where you have the ability to do that so just simplifying, taking, you know, hundreds and pages of regulation and just looking at those five or six uh, paradigms can be a good starting point to find solutions or to find where you need to be compliant with where the gaps are, where the gaps are not. Yeah, it's interesting to me that, that you describe the relationship as being collaborative uh, rather than adversarial. It is collaborative. Um, you know, it, having an adversarial relationship with the regulator only gets you one one place, which is back to the table to have the conversation. Uh, mm. So, I mean, this it's 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 a very collaborative relationship, and I would say it is a relationship like you would have with anyone, uh, even with a business, right? You would you would have professional disagreements. You would uh, you would uh, challenge professionally where uh, there are uh, gaps and where you are right or where the the interpretation is not been done accurately. But at the end of the day, the end result. If you take a step back and look at it, what the regulators want to do is make sure that you are not doing something that you shouldn't be doing and you're complying with protecting the data. Uh, and as a firm, you also want to do the same thing, whichever firm it might be. Um, uh, you know, they all firms that I have worked for um, have been in that business of making sure that consumer data or business data is protected with the highest level of uh, integrity. What's been your approach to resilience? You know, obviously with the COVID-19 situation, that's been uh, brought front and center as organizations have had to adapt and adjust. What's been your approach to that throughout your career? You know, uh, planning for resiliency and planning for an eventuality um, has been the mantra of my career. Uh, Going back uh, a couple of years, I would say over a decade, when 9-11 happened, uh, that was a wake-up call for uh, many of us, including myself. Uh, and at that time, I was working downtown um, and having seen um, the whole event unfold in front of my eyes and having offices and data centers 
downtown by Wall Street, um, was an eye-opener. Ironically enough, we had just done our disaster recovery testing the weekend before 9-11 in upstate New York. Um, And back then, it was a cold site. So you have to recover everything from backup tapes and, you know, run command lines and configurations and restore the data. So it wasn't a hot, hot setup or, uh, you know, the existence of cloud was non-existent minus the clouds out there. So (laughs) you, you really had to go through it. And we got lucky. We... We had practiced it the week before, so all our backup tapes were still off-site. They were due to come back. Uh, they had not come back yet. Um, and unfortunately, 9-11 happened. Um, and we got lucky because we invoked uh, a disaster and we went back to our recovery site upstate and uh, had all our equipment and our backup tapes there. And we were able to literally, you know, using little muscle memory because we had just done it the weekend before, I'll bet in a state of shock, um, we recovered the systems and we were up and running in you know, 25, 26 hours uh, with minimal loss where there were other larger organizations which were in the same facility that were down for over a week um, and two weeks. Um, and it wasn't a, you know, we did it better and you didn't do it better. It was just that we got lucky and we did it before. But learning from that, um, what I practiced throughout my career and ingrained in my teams and, and of course, the organization is uh, you you don't have to be lucky. You don't have to be a hero. You need to plan properly. You need to uh, practice and you need to practice enough for any event. So whether it's a disaster like 9-11, whether it's a hurricane uh, that could happen, or whether it's a pandemic like today, do you have the right tools, the right monitoring, uh, the right solutions in place to be able to adopt to that, which leads to, you know, secure remote access, which leads to uh, you know, not boiling the ocean, but plotting the ocean and making sure the systems that you are um, most worried about are your most important systems. They are the key to the organization. You know, instead of worrying about that Word document that sits on a marketing computer, are you really going to focus on that? Or are you going to focus on that application, which is your bread and butter, that actually what the organization is dependent on? And what are those conversations like with your board of directors when you're when you're laying out these types of plans, uh, speaking to them in their language, what does that look like? Um, it's it's uh, not easy to start with, um, but, uh, you know, o- o- over time, boards have evolved. Um, and many uh, people sitting on the boards have received a lot of information have and are really prepared than they were before. So I would say over the last 10 years, uh, the boards that I've interacted with have really um, really, you know, started to understand what it means to have disaster planning or resiliency planning. Now, now disaster recovery was always there. Business continuity was always there. Resiliency is almost a new term. It's not a new term per se, but it's a new term being used. So um, at the board level, um, you know, many information comes from the press or what has happened outside uh, to others or within the, or to our peers in the industry. Um, and they look at examples. Um, or what, you know, if there is a regulatory compliance, for example, they, they look at that. So at a board level, as long as you can articulate it in a simple manner, and again, simple is very objective, uh, in, in, in a manner which is digestible in where we are from our, our setup, um, where we need to go in order to derive the benefits in an eventuality that a disaster were to happen. I'll give you an example. Um, one of the organizations that I was working for, uh, you know, we had remote access, which was which was great. Um, you know, it was there only for people that needed it. 
they issued their own devices. Um, and we took a step back and said, well, do we really need to depend on that? Because in an event of, uh, you know, an issue or a disaster or a business continuity event, would we be in a position to issue laptops to people and, you know, sanction only the chosen ones? Or should we make it more, I would say, democratic, which is anyone can access it from any device as long as it's secure, complies with certain policies, and gives people the ability to access the systems. Mm. Explaining that change, now that change is so subtle because one would sit back and argue, why would you go and invest all this money in setting up an infrastructure when we already have it and it works fine? And if we have business continuity, we have laptops or we can give people devices um, because no one had gone through what we are going through today. Uh, so how do you explain the future in the past? Right. Um, uh, so explaining that was not simple. But what we had to use as the validation or as the as the approach was, you know, you're looking at an aged system and an aged technology, which is susceptible to a lot of issues where, you know, you have staff issues. And, you know, if you are a global organization or if you are a local organization, how would you mobilize the resources? Um, that's one angle. The second angle you use is, is, uh, is monetary. Um, the amount of money that you're spending in buying devices um, and hardware and software licenses, if you were to go into a more robust, you know, bring your own device model, um, would you save on that money? And that gets, you know, the finance uh, side of things taken care of. So you almost have to approach it um, in a very indifferent manners, identifying and tackling issues which are representative of, a, of any organization in the world, which is, would it improve business processes? Great. Would there be a return of investment? Sure. Would it make us more agile? Great. And would it also uh, provide us with the flexibility that we can uh, use it elsewhere instead of it gathering dust? So putting all of that together and then simplifying that notion, you know, takes work and that's what you present. And, you know, if you're lucky, you get it. And if you're not, then you still keep, you know, arguing your case. But I think uh, I feel for everyone coming out of this uh, crisis, anyone that's sitting in a seat with their boards or their management teams, uh, they will have it really easy uh, compared to many others that have that might have to go through many challenges. You mentioned how experiencing uh, 9-11 uh, informed the decisions you made after that. How do you suppose this COVID-19 situation is going to inform how we go forward from here? In a variety of ways. Um, it will inform people um, of uh, the necessity to promote collaboration um, in a more effective manner uh, and a self-service mode. Um, people, you know, still many organizations don't have a true self-service mode or the users uh, of the technologies are very much dependent on the technology teams of the organizations to support, um, you know, inst for instance, a video conference or a conference call. Um, so this will inform a lot of people on how to be uh, self-serviced. Uh, this would definitely increase the bar for security. Um, and I'm not saying it, uh, you know, because, uh, you know, security is close to my heart, but I'm saying it because, you know, security, where it was confined to the virtual four walls of any organization globally, has now been expanded to everyone's kitchen, living room, uh, any place in the house, the backyard, uh, because, you know, you're no longer in the office. Uh, you're you're everywhere. So it will inform, it will bring up um, newer ways to monitor and detect. It will bring up newer ways to provide secure access. 
Um, and more importantly, uh, it will also make companies realize that, you know, uh, they need to be able to do these tests um, frequently and practice these um, sessions and practice other scenarios which we have not thought of. And not just in a paper-based exercise, but through tabletops, real-time exercises, training and awareness uh, would be key and it would go to the top of anyone's list while the technology teams in the background um, improve their overall security posture and bring in tools and technologies that are more easy to use. I want to shift gears just a little bit and uh, get your take on threat intelligence um, and the part that you think it plays in an organization's security. I would say threat intelligence is uh, the nucleus of anyone's uh, security operations. Um, Without active threat intelligence, uh, without uh, real-time intelligence coming through, it's very hard to being able to protect uh, and manage the security posture of an organization. Um, So good threat intelligence uh, is key, but with good um, threat intelligence that is filtered, uh, that is specific, that also comes with a lot of background and data uh, is good as well because there are many places where you can get threat intelligence from. Uh, you know, you subscribe to sites, you have uh, intelligence communities that you work with, uh, you have different software providers. Uh, but what's key is how is that intelligence coming through as it pertains to you from an organizational standpoint? Um, how the indicators of compromise uh, that come with that intelligence, if any, are available to you? Um, and what level of information you're getting uh, to be able to quickly react to it? So that's very important. What sort of recommendations do you have for folks who are um, shopping around for threat intelligence, trying to figure out for themselves uh, how much they're going to do in-house, how much they're going to engage with an outside provider, those sorts of things? Do you have any tips for how to start that journey? Um, sure. Uh, I have, I mean, I have suggestions um, because, again, we are all learning in this, in this, in this environment. Uh, and, I, mm. and I'm a student of this practice instead of, uh, instead of a teacher. But, uh, but uh, on this ever, le- ever learning journey, um, I would say build it in-house um, to a degree. Um, there's a shortage of security professionals globally anyways. There's a, secu- there's a shortage of security analysts uh, that can actually analyze threat intelligence and being able to decipher what to do with it. Uh, getting intelligence is is there, but to be able to interpret it, to be able to see um, or get that data, again, globally, is very difficult. Um, so building it internally in itself, I don't think anyone will be successful uh, because the depth of uh, information you need, the places that you have to go to get threat intelligence, um, all the different sites globally, the dark webs to be part of that community that might be a part of that APT group uh, that might be doing this to get intelligence is very difficult. So you have to rely on the experts. So my suggestion is, you know, definitely set it up internally where you can have at least intelligence sources coming in and being aggregated, but do go outside, do go to trusted real-time players that are out there um, that have dashboards that are simple, that have experience uh, with people that are sitting in this and doing it for years and, uh, you know, using a combination of people, process, and technology and have analysts that can sit and decipher it and provide that information in real time. Um, you know, there, there, there are companies out there. So I would say um, don't just try to build it internally. Um, you will fail successfully uh, <laughs> in not getting all the intelligence, but do rely on intelligence um, firms that, that provide the solution. And uh, I think that would be uh, that would be a good starting point and a leg up also because, 
Um, in the security world, Dave, we don't wait. I mean, if you're going to wait to do things, uh, the bad actors or the threat actors are not waiting for you to put solutions in place. Um, they are on a pace. So if you procrastinate or if you think, yep, this won't happen to me, you know, I think we all said we would never be stuck at home and locked down in the continental United States ever. Um, mm. And uh, I think uh, uh, the hist- history says it all. You know, I, I think post this pandemic, there will be a huge demand for security professionals. So between colleges, universities, uh, or organizations, uh, you know, anyone that is in technology or not in technology and wants to go into security, I think this is a good time if they're working already to uh, go and lend their support to the security teams within the organizations. If they're not working, I have great opportunities to find work in the security field. Um, so more the merrier. This is this is my plea to get more people into this into this industry because uh, we definitely have a shortage. Our thanks to Adil Saeed for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Futures Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Monica Tadros, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. 